This is Truth Jihad Radio, covering the 9-11 Truth Movement since 2006. You can subscribe by clicking on the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from an undisclosed location out in the middle of nowhere in the heartland of the United States of America. The heartland, or shall we say the homeland, well, the United States of America has been in pretty bad shape for a while, and specifically since September 11th, 2001, those pushing back against that coup d'etat include, well, a long list of folks, including professional associations, and one of the most important ones is the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. It so happens that earlier today, Friday, January 21st, 2022, Nick Harrison of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry put forth some oral arguments to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit on behalf of a number of plaintiffs, including family members of 9-11 victims, among others, who are suing, uh, or rather asking for the uh, standing to sue uh, and get a, uh, well, to sue the U.S. attorney for obstructing their First Amendment petition to the grand jury. Are we going to get a grand jury investigation of 9-11? Well, that's way overdue, and uh, working on that case is Nick Harrison as well as Richard Gage, AIA, who's also with the Lawyers Committee. I believe we do have Nick and Richard on the line. Let's find out. Hey, well, welcome, uh, Nick and Richard. How are you? Good. Thank you. And thank you, Kevin. Awesome to be here with you. Hey, great to have you both back. Uh, well, I've been on the road. I've been like driving across, uh, you know, pretty much the heartland country, uh, where Dorothy and Toto used to live, uh, the panhandle of Oklahoma, Texas, etc. And so I was driving all day. I didn't have time to try to keep up with the oral arguments to the Second Circuit, uh, Court of Appeals. So let's start with uh, with some news on that. Uh, maybe Nick, I, I know you're you're having some laryngitis, Nick, so you can bow out anytime you want. But maybe you know at least give us a a quick uh, rundown on that. Okay, Kevin, are you able to hear me? Okay. Yeah, you're coming through fine now. So um, we did have the oral argument today before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. The argument went well. Um, we had some. Interesting questions from the three judges on the panel. It was somewhat of a lively discussion. Um, the court decided to take the matter under advisement. So we won't hear, uh, in terms of a decision on the case for about, I would guess a few months, but they could decide it more quickly. Um, and the key uh, decision to be made in that case, as you noted, is standing, meaning the, the legal eligibility to sue, but uh, we have a strong case on standing for the three 9-11 family members and the two Ground Zero responders and the two nonprofits, as well as Richard Gage, all of whom are plaintiffs in the case. Uh, our standing is particularly strong under the First Amendment claim, which we can explain at your discretion. So uh, this, the stage has been set for an eventual decision on whether our petition to the grand jury in New York on the demolition evidence for the trade centers, trade center building collapses on 9-11 will actually find its way to the hands of the actual grand jurors. 
Okay, and, and maybe you should go ahead and explain the First Amendment claim. Okay, so it's pretty straightforward. Uh, pretty much everybody in this country knows that they have a right to petition their government for what's called a redress of grievances in the Constitution. It's a First Amendment right to petition the government. It's been held by the Supreme Court and pretty much all the courts of appeal in the federal court system to be a general or global right that applies to all branches of the federal government. The What folks may not be as familiar with is that the federal grand jury and the federal special grand jury are creatures of the Constitution. Uh, they have a constitutional role to play independent of each of the other branches of government. So folks may not understand that the grand jury is not simply part of the Department of Justice. It's not simply part of the judicial system. Uh, in fact, it's independent of those two, as well as the Congress. It works with the other branches as needed to perform its mission, but it's a truly independent entity in the federal government. Our position in our First Amendment claim in this litigation is that citizens have just as much right to petition a federal grand jury under the First Amendment as they would to petition the president or the Congress. So, or to petition a court for, uh, you know, some judicial relief. So that's the gist. Uh, the case law is pretty clear that if you have an obstruction of your right to petition by a government official or agency, that that creates a what we call a cognizable legal injury, in fact, which satisfies the first prong of the standing test in federal courts. The second prong is simply whether the conduct of the defendant you're complaining about caused that injury. And the last prong is simply whether the order you're seeking from the federal court would give you a remedy for that injury. As I explained to the Court of Appeals today, that's a pretty straightforward analysis. Um, our petition to the grand jury was not simply uh, interfered with or hindered or discouraged uh, or made more burdensome by the U.S. attorney. It was actually completely blocked, completely obstructed by the U.S. attorney, who's still holding our petition, refusing to give it to the grand jury. So we have a, uh, a blatant violation of the First Amendment, which creates the injury. And then because it was the U.S. attorney who blocked the delivery of the petition, uh, that injury is caused by the actions of the defendants that we complain about. And we're asking the court to give an order to the U.S. attorney to require delivery of our petition to the grand jury. So basically all prongs of the standing test are satisfied. And that's uh, the gist of what we gave the Court of Appeals to think about today. Well, among the petitioners are uh, people like uh, Bob Mathelvain, Father Bobby McIlvain, who died in the World Trade Center on September 11th, uh, others and others um, who were survivors uh, of victims of 9-11, clearly they would have standing. And uh, we have on the show with us one of the petitioners, and that's Richard Gage AIA. Uh, Richard, can you tell us about what brought you to become a petitioner in this case? Yes, for 15 years I have been uh, assembling evidence and, and researching the destruction, the explosive destruction at the World Trade Center, uh, Twin Towers and the third high rise, uh, Building 7. 
that was not hit by an airplane but yet came down anyway in the exact manner of a classic controlled demolition. So the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry has successfully packaged in 60 exhibits the evidence that we have assembled over 15 years. And we were so delighted to to have uh, the, the, the legal help here by Mick and his team uh, to bring this into, finally, the, the justice system. And uh, in this form of a petition for a special grand jury investigation. And uh, I I was listening to Mick live uh, this morning give his presentation uh, uh, to the highest, the second highest court in the land. This is um, uh, an incredible feat uh, just to just to get this far. And I sure hope that they see fit to protect our First Amendment right uh, to petition and to unblock the the passage of these 60 exhibits uh, to the grand jury. Uh, and because we're going to be following this up with a supplement to the grand jury, which is the film 9-11 Crime Scene to Courtroom, uh, in which uh, we'll be speaking directly to the grand jurors. And uh, they will be hearing uh, and seeing the evidence, not just reading about it in the in the uh, exhibits. We're going to bring them to life. And so, yeah, on behalf of the family members uh, and the 3,500 architects and engineers who have signed the petition demanding a new investigation, uh, I continue forward uh, as as uh, as much as I possibly can and as working as hard as I can to bring this evidence not only to uh, through Mick to the special grand jury, but uh, to uh, the American people and the and the public uh, and the media and our government, uh, legislative government entities as well. Well, 9-11 is obviously uh, a very apropos subject for a grand jury investigation, and it really probably was from the get-go. And I know there were efforts in the early stages of the 9-11 Truth Movement to seat a citizen's grand jury, and, of course, I believe there was that citizen's grand jury proceedings in San Diego. Maybe, Nick, you could explain the difference between these folks in San Diego who kind of totally independently from the entire uh, official judicial system said, you know, here we are, we are a grand jury, and proceeded to do their event, which ended up looking a lot like a 9-11 Truth Conference with testimony from experts, um, what, what was the difference between that and I think somebody else was trying to do the same thing in Texas as opposed to, to what you're doing? Well, the key is we're using the officially recognized grand jury system where you have a court-appointed set of grand jurors, 18 to 23 normal citizens, who then are charged with the constitutional duty to do two important things. Uh, one is to determine if there's probable cause to believe that a crime was committed by reviewing all the evidence they can get their hands on. And as the Supreme Court has said, basically check every clue and examine every witness until you get to the bottom of whether a crime was committed and who may have done it. And then the other function is to make sure that no one is prosecuted unjustly or for a political or corrupt motive 
So it's sort of what we call the shield and the sword roles of the grand jury as created in the Constitution. Uh, the, the citizen grand jury is similar, still involves regular people, and depending on who does it and how they uh, plan it, it can be it can function in a similar way in terms of looking at evidence and trying to determine if there was probable cause that a crime was committed. The difference is the courts will not recognize any indictment coming out of a citizen grand jury, whereas they would from a regular uh, official grand jury. So we're trying to get our our evidence, the evidence Richard has described in brief, into the hands of the official grand jury and see if they find it adequate for a proposed indictment or uh, the special grand jury has a unique function that a lot of folks don't know about, and that is um, it can actually issue a report on public government misconduct or government corruption in the process of doing its investigation of the crimes. And we've asked for that as well in the petition. Um, and that, and the grand jury, the special grand jury is not restricted from doing that, issuing such a report on misconduct or corruption in the government. Um, even if they don't find enough evidence to indict any particular person for any particular crime. So there are some differences between government recognized grand juries and citizen-initiated unofficial grand juries. Um, I see the unofficial grand juries, the role they play is similar to the role the Lawyers Committee is playing at the moment, which is generating investigative evidence and preparing the groundwork to petition an official grand jury or the Department of Justice or a federal court, all of which we're doing. So both roles are important. Um, We've sort of performed our own unofficial, we didn't call it exactly that, but Richard will remember in 2016 we held hearings, public hearings, the Lawyers Committee did in New York and took testimony. Richard gave testimony to us at that time uh, to the Lawyers Committee and a number of lawyers. Um, and we were trying to evaluate the evidence at that point, essentially functioning as an unofficial citizen's grand jury, although most of us were lawyers. So it's uh, – I wouldn't discourage citizens from trying to play uh, the unofficial role and then having that lead to an official petition or an official lawsuit and so forth. And, and are there cases where these kinds of crimes of the powerful have been dealt with effectively by grand juries in this kind of situation? It's a pretty good question. Um, there have been a lot of indictments for corruption out of grand juries over the years. However, those indictments of government officials tend to be the indictments that the administration in power wishes to see. So there's a distinction there. Uh, the, the frequency of a grand jury actually indicting government officials currently in power is pretty rare. I haven't done a historical survey, and it's an interesting question that would be deserving of some research. Uh, to see how often that has happened. Um, at the moment, we're looking back in our petition to, you know, 9-11, which was now 20 years ago, and it's a, certainly a different administration. 
So I think there is there is certainly precedent for what we what we're asking for now, which is, you know, a later administration looking back objectively and critically at the conduct of a former one and holding them to account under the law. That could happen. Well, I certainly hope it will. Uh, Richard, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you came to join the board at the, the lawyers committee. Uh, you know, you have a lot of experience now with these 9-11 Truth nonprofits. And how do you see the mission of the Lawyers Committee and uh, what, what are uh, some of the other things that it's been doing that uh, made you want to join? They have uh, a dozen attorneys or so all together, and their minds are focused on getting justice for the 9-11 victims. And the evidence that they use primarily, so far at least, is the World Trade Center evidence, the explosive destruction. Uh, I mentioned Building 7, uh, but there's a litany of evidence for the explosive destruction of the Twin Towers as well. And there have been many different legal actions, one of which was suing the FBI that the Lawyers Committee has done on our behalf. And so we uh, are... We have been the, the the 9-11 truth movement has been begging us to get our evidence into uh, the legal, the judicial system. Uh, and one of the ways that they've done that is uh, by suing the FBI, because the FBI has uh, withheld evidence, essentially, from Congress. The Congress asked demanded of them that they provide all the evidence and an assessment of it, of the evidence that they've assembled since the nine, the, the, uh, the 9-11 commission. And so this is one of the many activities, uh, that the lawyers committee has done, uh, and, and it's just so exciting to be able to be of service to the lawyers committee uh, on a technical basis as a technical advisor. Uh, because I've steeped my head into this evidence for 15 years, and uh, I'm free from AE 9-11 truth now, uh, having uh, been uh, 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 pushed out of the nest, so to speak, uh, because of my thoughts on other subjects, which I probably shouldn't have made. But anyway, I did, and now I, I am essentially a free agent, and that you can see how free I am by visiting my website, richardgage911.org. Well, the Lawyers Committee swept me up when they found out that I was uh, free. So um, it's been a match uh, made uh, quite uh, beautifully because uh, uh, we are partnering on the film that I mentioned to be directed by Christina Borgeson, Emmy Award-winning uh, uh, journalist and filmmaker of TWA Flight 800. So she's already made films about corrupt government agencies. And so this one is going to be yet another one uh, on the subject of the World Trade Center evidence. Uh, the grand jurors are going to get to see uh, the, the nanothermite chips in all the World Trade Center dust samples collected by an independent team of eight international scientists. They're going to see the 
uh, dust uh, analysis uh, of the U.S. Geological Survey, which proves that there's molten iron droplets um, uh, and other uh, evidence of extreme temperatures that the official story can't even account. They're going to get to see laterally ejected, freely flying uh, four and eight ton structural steel sections weighing eight tons that are ejected at 80 miles an hour, landing 600 feet in every direction. I mean, can you imagine a, a, a group of grand jurors who are likely unfamiliar with this evidence? I think more than half of Americans, maybe three quarters, are, are unfamiliar because the government didn't see fit to educate the people about it. The media certainly didn't. Um, they have put forth a, a, a collapse scenario for all three of these buildings that bears no resemblance to reality and completely ignores uh, all of the evidence that we have been uh, getting into the courts now. So uh, the latest efforts done by the Lawyers Committee, which I'm helping with, is a Freedom of Information Act request where we now have uh, are going uh, to have arguments uh, where where Mick will make the case uh, for the withholding of evidence by FEMA and by NIST uh, of the Building 7 investigation. Uh, th- this is a federal agency. They can't withhold, due to the Freedom of Information Act, uh, evidence, uh, well, information that is, uh, that is being asked for. But they have uh, completely uh, obfuscated uh, and lied uh, about th- the information they have. And now the judge has seen that and says, you can't get away with this. So um, we're we're uh, we're sitting real pretty. Mick can explain the the legal, and I think it's very exciting. I hope he will, if he has a voice left. Yeah, the, I'm okay. The legal Thank opportunities you. for us. Hey, Go ahead, yeah. Richard. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I appreciate Richard trying to save my voice, and it, it may be necessary. We have another interview after this one, but I'm still talking, so I'll I'll talk as long as I can. But let me add a couple points, uh, Kevin, for you and your audience's benefit on the argument that happened today in the Second Circuit, and then I want to move to what Richard has brought up, which is another one of our legal actions that um, is moving along in a positive direction, uh, the FOIA case. But back to the uh, grand jury case for a moment in New York and the Second Circuit argument with the Federal Court of Appeals today, we focused on the First Amendment claim uh, earlier in this program, but we also had two other claims. We had mandamus claims. For folks who don't know what that means, it has to do with enforcing mandatory duties on the part of federal officials. And for those who don't know, there is a federal statute that gives citizens the right to sue to force a federal government official to perform a duty imposed on that official by law as long as that duty is mandatory, not discretionary. And under the federal special grand jury statute, again, something a lot of folks may not know, is that citizens can report a federal crime to a U.S. attorney, and there is a mandatory duty imposed on that U.S. attorney to relay that citizen report of a crime to a special grand jury. And that was one of the underpinnings, in addition to the First Amendment, the legal underpinnings of our petition, and now for our uh, arguments in the federal courts. So uh, the standing, as it turns out, for the plaintiffs we identified, 
that I'm representing is basically the same analysis as for the First Amendment. One of the reasons is that before there was a Constitution, there was a grand jury. The grand jury has a longer history than the Constitution, and citizens in the in the old days, as we say, uh, could communicate with grand juries without any question. The federal law has evolved to where U.S. attorneys have taken perhaps too much of a role in controlling what does and doesn't get to the grand juries, and that's part of what has led to this litigation. In our case, the U.S. attorney just decided they didn't have to pass on our petition at all to the grand jury, but they have a duty under a federal statute to do that, in addition to their obligation under the First Amendment to not block a petition to another federal entity. So we have that additional legal grounds in the case, which is an interesting one. And uh, if that grand jury statute did not exist, imposing that duty on the U.S. attorney to pass on citizen reports to the grand juries, there would be a constitutional problem. And I think Congress understood that when they passed that law, because they also passed another law, which is uh, not as interesting and more troublesome, which is that it is now a crime, federal crime, for a citizen to try to communicate with the federal grand jury in writing. And that obstructs the historical practice of citizens, you know, communicating freely with grand juries, but to avoid the constitutional problem of, of essentially obstructing the grand jury's constitutional role because the, the grand jury can't really do its job of determining probable cause or protecting against unjust prosecutions if it doesn't get to see all the evidence, both sides of the evidence. So I think Congress recognized that, and that's why they put this duty on the U.S. attorney to pass on citizen reports of crime so that, you know, that line of communication would not be totally blocked. So the Second Circuit is going to have to struggle with that question as well as the First Amendment one. And then the third uh, claim, third type of claim in our federal lawsuit now before the Second Circuit was a request for grand jury records. And we had a pretty modest request there for the plaintiffs. We just asked to get enough of the grand jury records to determine if our petition and the exhibits that Richard had described were actually given to the grand jurors. And uh, the U.S. attorney has refused to give us even a single piece of paper of grand jury records to answer that question. And so uh, the extent that that those records can be kept secret is part of the issue or issues to be decided by the Second Circuit in this case now on appeal. So before I go to our Freedom of Information Act case that Richard was mentioning, uh, Kevin, did you have any questions for me on the mandamus or the request for grand jury records? Um, no, go, go right ahead. Okay, so thanks. So as Richard mentioned, uh, and, and Kevin, you may remember David Cole, who's a longtime 9-11 researcher, investigator, who has done a lot of freedom of information work in the public interest on 9-11. I'm representing David Cole in this uh, FOIA case, freedom of information case that Richard mentioned, and the Lawyers Committee is supporting me in doing that, and the records that have come out of that case, and we hope additional records that will come out of that case as it goes on, will be shared with the Lawyers Committee in addition to David getting it out in his own circles, and we'll, of course, get it out to the public. But the short version of that very disturbing case, for those who haven't followed it, 
is that David had requested the records of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, related to FEMA's study of the collapse of the World Trade Center buildings and the performance of other buildings uh, around the World Trade Center on 9-11 during the attacks. And the study was done. It was a lengthy study published by FEMA uh, regarding their view of the cause of the collapse. And one of the more famous outcomes of that study, as Richard no doubt remembers, was FEMA said that the uh, the best theory they could come up with on Building 7, which wasn't hit by an airplane, had only, and I forget the exact wording, but it was only a remote probability of being correct. So they a didn't, low probability of occurrence. Of occurrence, yeah. So they didn't get to the bottom of it, but they did do a study. And so David asked for all the records regarding the raw data, including photographs and test results, laboratory results, uh, video uh, interviews that went into FEMA's doing that study and reaching their conclusions. And the remarkable first response David got to his FOIA request was, from FEMA, we don't have any records responsive to your request. And you have to sort of stop and ask yourself, how could a federal agency that spent, no doubt, a lot of money doing a very lengthy study that's been published on very technical and important issues have zero records of any data that was used to do the study? So that was a um, a non-acceptable answer. Let's just put it that way. And so David, uh, not being one to be put off, uh, persisted, and um, he did ask at some point after getting no meaningful response from the agency except the runaround after like three or four years of trying, uh, he eventually asked me to sue on his behalf, and I did. Um, about three or four months after we brought the federal lawsuit, we did receive about 3,900 pages of FEMA records related to the building performance study uh, that they had withheld from David for several years, even though those records were releasable under FOIA. And we obtained the correspondence uh, between FEMA and NIST, another interesting twist, that NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, got involved in this case. And I'll explain that in a moment. But so we got the records, but we also got the correspondence showing that the reason that um, FEMA claimed they didn't have any records to give David was that they claimed to have given all of their records regarding the World Trade Center building collapses to NIST, another federal agency. And when we inquired, well, shouldn't wouldn't you have kept your hard drives, your computer hard drives, your backup storage, your email systems, your backup email systems. How can you say you have nothing? And they basically, again, gave a non-credible answer, which was, oh, we gave all of that. We gave everything to NIST. We kept nothing. And that was not believable. So um, David reviewed, and I reviewed the material they did give us, and they gave us quite a bit after we sued them. But they still were withholding key documents, key photographs, a key video, uh, a couple key CDs with a lot of data on it that we haven't seen yet. And we know those things existed because they are referenced in public documents, including FEMA's own reports. But they, they, they didn't give us those key records even after we sued them. So we continued to press the lawsuit for those records, and that led to 
what you might call dueling summary judgment motions, which the court eventually decided. Uh, the court referred the, those motions to a magistrate judge. Uh, not, well, I don't know, a year or so ago, the magistrate issued a recommended decision in our favor. <clears throat> and then December 21st, which was about a month ago, um, the federal judge, Judge Sullivan, in the District of Columbia U.S. District Court, adopted pretty much the entire magistrate's recommended decision in our favor and has officially deny, denied the government's summary judgment motion and granted us, the plaintiff, David Cole, discovery in the case, which means we're now going to be able to uh, do some written discovery of interrogatories to be answered under oath, some document requests with the power of the law to compel responses, and, and likely some depositions of witnesses under oath. So uh, it's an exciting development that discovery yeah, that's rarely great. happens. That's like the first discovery uh, achieved in the, in the whole 9-11 truth. Well, that's, I was about – you read my mind there, Kevin. Um, I, I was about to say that. So maybe you can finish my next paragraph for me. I'll save my voice. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so um, the, the case is going well. We have a hearing on February 4th where we will argue the details of what we want in discovery. The government is, of course, trying to keep us from getting virtually any discovery, but see. So that's where that case stands, but I'll turn it back to you and Richard. Okay, well, that's fantastic news. You know, that discovery has been kind of a, a holy grail of the truth movement for a long time, and it's been really, really tough to ever get there. So we're, we're really uh, getting a bit of a breakthrough here. Uh, well, Richard, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on what we just heard from Nick? Um, it's pretty exciting. I mean, FOIA requests uh, have generated a lot of really good information for us in the 9-11 truth movement. And if we get what, and I imagine we will, because the judge is about to find them in contempt of court, uh, I think, and uh, they're going to have to turn over a lot of stuff. And they're not going to have time to go through it uh, as carefully and and, you know, this is how we got so much information uh, to prove that uh, JFK was assassinated by inside elements in the government. So uh, we we we're very excited about uh, this delivery. This this will be a trove of information and they'll they have their their uh, their tail between their legs. Uh, FEMA with 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 the judges impending. Uh, uh, shaming of them. So, uh, we, we're, we're very, very expecting here that we're gonna find, uh, cult, cult, them, we're gonna find them culpable uh, uh, yes. of crimes. Is that the right word? It is, you got um, the right word, yes. In addition to, to, to getting the information that proves that these buildings were actually blown up. Go ahead. So, yeah, sorry to interrupt Richard, but, uh, first of all, as a technicality, we're not at the uh, sanction stage or the um, contempt stage. That would only happen. I am. Richard is ready for it. I mean, he's made that clear. <laughs> I, I, I don't blame you, Richard. You know, you, you've been, the stuff you've been putting out for the past, what, near 15 years really should have been put out to a grand jury a long time ago. Well, I agree with that. <laughs> so, but the and just to explain the process, um, when the judge has the hearing on February 4th, 
uh, the judge uh, or the magistrate will either approve or recommend. And I think that the magistrate has the power to go ahead and approve the discovery plan. We'll then do our discovery, uh, depositions, interrogatories, document requests, if at that point the agencies continue to hide the ball. And I say agencies plural because NIST is a defendant in this case as well, and our discovery will be directed at NIST as well as FEMA. If they continue to hide the ball and, and they do not answer completely or honestly under oath or they hide documents uh, that are requested, um, that then – you know, becomes a time when when the issue of sanctions can be talked about. We're not there yet. I'm certainly hopeful that we'll simply get the information from the agencies. Uh, keep in mind, what we're doing discovery on here in a FOIA case is about the inadequacy of the agency's search, which led them to not produce the missing records uh, that were responsive to the request. Depending on what that discovery shows about how they did and did not do their search, the judge then will have to decide whether, one, to find them in violation of the law, and two, what the remedy is. And in the process, you know, we may discover where some of these missing documents are. And if we do, those are likely to be produced as well. So it's there are a few steps left. You know, it's a one step at a time sort of thing. But it is uh, significant progress. And we'll keep you keep you advised, Kevin, as it goes along. Excellent. Yeah, well, I am certainly uh, looking forward to seeing what material gets uncovered and, and when and if we get to a sanction stage. Um, it's it's kind of mind-blowing that it's taken this long. Uh, so, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that, that's gone through your mind, Richard, too, as you kind of moved from your career uh, really focusing on the evidence for demolition, which, of course, is evidence of a monstrous crime, the crime of the century, uh, to now working with the lawyers in search of justice. Yeah, I'm I'm very fortunate, and and uh, I'm very we're all very fortunate because I'm bringing you know I've made two films, 9/11 explosive evidence, experts speak out, and solving the mystery of World Trade Center seven 15 minute documentary with Ed Asner. Uh, those remain the key. Uh, films uh, focusing, and they're over 10 years old, on the evidence uh, for the World Trade Center. So I'm bringing that with, along with uh, the, the, the specifics uh, of these 60 exhibits, and the lawyers are, Mick, Mick's going to be in the courtroom with me uh, and, and, and telling the, the jurors, in, in effect, what is the law, what should they be looking at, what are the possible crimes that may have been committed? Who's a person of material interest that they might want to subpoena? Mick, do you want to say more about that? Sure. The The film project is essentially a culmination not only of the investigations Richard has done, that a lot of the scientists, architects, and engineers have done, that the Lawyers Committee has been able to make use of, which we you know greatly appreciate, but also of our, our legal work and our own investigations. Plus, we're going to be involved in an ongoing investigation as the film project proceeds, and Richard will be helping us, as he says, bring the evidence alive for the public, and we hope eventually the grand jurors. And just to be clear how that process would work, when Richard says we'll be in the courtroom, we're going to be in 
a figurative courtroom and doing the movie, which we hope will find its way into the actual grand jury room by way of us supplementing our petition. If we get a, a victory in the Second Circuit appeal that we argue today, and that court orders the U.S. attorney to deliver our petition to the grand jurors, that should mean that our supplement to the petition or supplements as more evidence comes in also gets handed actually to the grand jurors. So if that plays out, as we believe the law would require, uh, then, you know, the actual grand jurors would see our presentation of the evidence uh, in the film. Or if, you know, the U.S. attorney or grand jurors prefer, we could come in and present it live. In the meantime, we're putting the public, you all, in the role of the grand jurors so that you can you can watch the documentary episodes as they proceed and we are presenting uh, those episodes speaking to you as if you were in a grand jury seat. So you can decide for yourself what you believe this evidence means and what you believe the law would require to be done acting on it. And I'll be helping you, the public in the role of grand juror, understand your legal powers as a sort of a mock grand juror. And Richard will be helping you understand the evidence and uh we may get some help from our friends and colleagues in, in the various episodes, and hopefully including some of the experts who have developed some of this key evidence. So that's a great project. Um, so well, uh-huh. you think I'm going to have to sign off to head over for another radio show. You've got a schedule uh, yes. following the busy day in court today, so it's, it's uh, quite a day. <laughs> um, have we hit the end of your ability to stay on this show? Uh, pretty much. Okay. Well, let's see, but, uh, before we go, once again, you, you said that they, uh, that is the, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit took your case under advisement and a de- decision really theoretically could be forthcoming kind of any time in the next few months. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. Well, we will wait with proverbially bated breath. Uh, <laughs> and, and exactly. Pray for the best. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Mick Harrison of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and Richard Gage AIA, also of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Uh, congratulations on pushing this forward in the courts, and uh, I'll be looking forward to checking in with you as things progress. Thanks, Thank Jim. you, Take Kevin. Care. Okay, bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that's uh, Mick Harrison and Richard Gage. Um, I'm Kevin Barrett, uh, listening with great interest to what they have to say about today's transpirings in that circuit court. Uh, certainly the wheels of justice grind slowly. <laughs> at least they're grinding, though. If they weren't grinding at all, um, it would be even more hopeless than it is, which is saying something. <laughs> all right. Well, we're kind of uh, here in the last, what, 10 minutes of the show, and our, our main, main guest had to move off to another show. So I was going to invite our intrepid producer, Mr. Rowe, if he has something to say about what we just talked about in either of the two hours. He's welcome to join in. And um, meanwhile, I'll just keep talking. (laughs) I thought I would let my listeners in on a little secret, and that is I'm I'm working on a couple of articles. Well, one of them I already submitted to the Crescent International Magazine, which is the Muslim world's leading English-language magazine on current events. And so that, that article is on Iran's achievements since its 1979 revolution. 
in particular, um, Islam arising as a source and stimulant of knowledge. And uh, that article, which again I just submitted to Crescent International, is about the, uh, well, how, how the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran was cast as this backwards looking obscurantist a uh, bunch of religious yahoos who were going to destroy all of the wonderful educational and technological progress brought to Iran by the U.S. puppet dictator, the Shah, and his CIA built and operated torture chambers. Well, when he was overthrown and the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, came back on 11th uh, February 1979, uh, the, uh, a lot of the left uh, as as well as many establishment observers, thought that Iran was turning its back on the modern world and sort of following Saudi Arabia uh, towards this kind of Wahhabist obscurantism where you know everybody would be believing that the world was flat and they'd be rejecting all forms of knowledge other than this really simplistic stuff. Uh, they're, they're you know overly simplistic and superficial. Uh, interpretations of scripture, and they wouldn't let anybody think beyond those limits. That's kind of the stereotype that was floating around in the West. Today, the Islamic Republic of Iran is launching rockets. It's one of the top nations in the world in rocketry, uh, putting satellites into orbit, and it's leading the way among developing countries in a long list of scientific fields. So, wait a minute, what's what's going on here? Well, the fact is that having an Islamic republic whose social system, legal system, political system is based on the great tradition of interpretation of Islamic scripture, it doesn't have to be stupid interpretation of Islamic scripture. Uh, and indeed, in, Islam, in, in Iran, it, it isn't. There's a tremendous tradition of seminaries in Iran. In fact, many would say that Iran is the last place where classical education is still taken seriously. The Ayatollah Khomeini, for example, was a, a scholar of many things, including philosophy. He was a scholar of Ibn al-Arabi, the world's greatest all-time theosophist, uh, a very, very intelligent man who respected knowledge. And likewise, the Iranian mullocracy, if you want to call them that, uh, the religious establishment is not a sort of backwards uh, anti-knowledge kind of group of people. It's the exact opposite. So since this 1979 Islamic revolution, Iran has seen its universities you know, explode and flower. And, and now we have a, in particular, the rate of enrollment of women has gone way, way, way up. But overall, the educational level in Iran has risen uh, massively. Uh, during this period uh, after the revolution, life expectancy in Iran rose more than 12 years, schooling per capita uh, by uh, six years, uh, and uh, per capita income by 60%, along with uh, these developments in, in medicine, uh, space and aviation, chemistry, computer science, biotechnology, and medical science, physics and material science, and of course nuclear science, uh, even nanotechnology. So Iran is a technological powerhouse. Its universities are first-rate institutions. Uh, they outshine most of the rest of the developing world um, in all of these kinds of areas. So 
my argument was here is is that this notion of Islam or even religion in general as being sort of necessarily opposed to the development of knowledge is wrong. And the Iranian experience proves that. Uh, of course, there are many other examples that we could bring to bear for that on, on that as well. But then, moving on to the, the other article I thought I would discuss, and this one I haven't even really begun, but I just thought I would uh, throw some thoughts out to my listeners, and if you want to contact me, of course, you can subscribe to my Substack by way of truthjihad.com. You just click on the subscribe at Substack button, you can get a free subscription, or you could, better yet, uh, you know, pay six bucks a month or, or less if you get an annual subscription, and you'll get everything I put out, including the archives of these podcasts, you'll get those archives before others do. So anyway, uh, I thought I would share with, with my listeners who now can contact me by way of that Substack subscription, or uh, you can always email me too, truthjihad at gmail, and tell me what you think of this. Okay, I'm working on this article uh, entitled, Why Can't America Be a Normal Country? And I've already written the first sentence. Today's United States of America is playing a very strange, abnormal, unsustainable role in the world. Where do I go from here? <laughs> I think the notion of, of America uh, returning to becoming a normal country, of course, it doesn't mean that it has to give up on all of these wonderful uh, specificities about America. You know, the United States of America has its own particular history and geography and population and you know, we, we are what we are and, and we're, we're different from everybody else. That's true. We don't have to stop that. We don't have to blend in some kind of, uh, you know, uh, McDonald's of, uh, fast food, uh, international, uh, kind of melanges where everybody from all the world just mixes together and en- ends up becoming exactly one people. Everybody's exactly alike everywhere you go. We don't want that. There are all kinds of cool, you know, regional specificities here in the United States. But what I'm talking about, about becoming a normal country, uh, what I'm talking about really is, is getting rid of American exceptionalism and this arrogance that comes with it, and then also changing our political economic system from one that is based on, on robbing the world, uh, and indeed our, our elites robbing our own people, uh, to one that's, that's a little bit more normal. You know, one where people who produce wealth are the ones who get to enjoy it, uh, where the parasitic sectors of you know, investment banking, uh, the big roulette wheel, uh, the New York uh, Stock Exchange, and this sort of thing, these, these unproductive, rent-seeking kinds of attempts to get a free lunch, which totally dominate the economy today, uh, that all really needs to be shut down, and we need to be a kind of a normal country where people actually have to work for their wealth. To do that, not only do we have to get rid of the philosophy of American exceptionalism, it says the U.S. is the indispensable nation, and therefore we can spend more military money than the next eight or ten nations combined. We can surround the world with 800-plus military bases, try to occupy the whole world, push up against Russia's doorstep in Ukraine, plunge the world into a new nuclear war, and, and you know, eradicate much of humanity and all of civilization. This is really where we're heading right now. And this is all coming out of this arrogance, this notion that the United States of America has to dominate the world. And, and this philosophy of American exceptionalism, of the U.S. as the indispensable nation, 
indispensable in the sense that it has to rule the world and arbitrate all the disputes and have military bases everywhere and strong-armed leaders of all the other countries to do what we say. And if any countries want to be independent, like Putin's Russia or the Islamic Republic of Iran or China or whatever, other than Venezuela or Cuba, what have you, they can't. We're going to punish them until they toe the line. So that, that arrogance is, is what I'm talking about. That arrogance is based on the exploitive system uh, of our creation of money, ultimately. The fact that a tiny cabal of incredibly wealthy private bankers has been handed the keys to the treasury and the ability to create our entire currency supply by coining it out of nothing, um, and lending it into existence at interest, and then demanding repayment of the full amount as plus the interest. And then lending to other countries as well, um, running huge deficits so they can just print all the money they want, and it doesn't have to be paid back if they give it to the, their friends. Uh, going into tremendous debt from foreign borrowers to borrowers to float the power of the U.S. dollar, you know, selling all these quote-unquote bonds, right, which means borrowing from all of these foreigners in order to keep the dollar uh, worth something. That's a scam, as Michael Hudson said on my show. Uh, so uh, to become a normal nation, we would have to end that system and renounce American exceptionalism. And we would have to say, look, the rest of the world has to make a living to survive economically, and so we're going to make a living too. We have plenty of resources. We have a dynamic population, you know, human resources, as they say. I don't like that particular metaphor, but, hey, we have a lot of, you know, sharp and hardworking people still, and maybe not quite as hardworking as they used to be, but not too bad, really, all things considered. And we can, you know, get our natural resources and make, make enough stuff to take care of ourselves and produce a surplus and trade it with others, and we have enough political and military and economic power to see to it that we are getting reasonable terms of trade. And we don't need to dominate the world to do that. We don't need to have our military bases surrounding everybody with nuclear guns pointed at the heads of all the foreign leaders. We're spending so much money on that military that that's forcing us to be even more predatory in our approach to the rest of the world. And that's just uh, turning into a death spiral. And where does it end? It, it could end with a collapse here in the United States, or it could end with a war, perhaps a war designed to stave off collapse. And, and this surrounding this Russia with uh, first-strike nuclear systems and pushing them through these new NATO countries, bringing all of the former Soviet countries into NATO and pushing these first-strike weapon systems right up to the border of Russia and putting them you know, to Putin's head and saying, surrender or else... Uh, is is ridiculous. It's suicidal because, you know, like Putin says, they have nowhere left to retreat. And the same kind of arrogance is happening with the uh, empire's confrontation with China and Iran. And so we're seeing maybe the death spasms of a doomed empire because the world isn't going to accept the system forever. And we Americans need to get used to that. And so we need to figure out how we can become a normal nation on our own terms and not wait until... The foreigners have gotten sick of us and found a way to turn that gun that we're pointing at their heads back on ourselves. You know, a lot of uh, unnecessary suffering could happen that way. So that's a summary of the uh, latest uh, articles. 
Why Can't America Be a Normal Country Again? That, that one's unwritten. It should be coming out before too long. And then the other one on Iran's progress since the Islamic Revolution will be available in Crescent Magazine in the next issue coming out February 1st. And my subscribers at Substack will get it earlier. Go to truthjihad.com, click on the subscribe at Substack button to get early access to all that stuff. Thank you for listening. Bumper Music's playing. I'm Kevin Barrett, and I'm out of here until next week. Yeah.